members' contributions for approximately half of our annual operating budget. So thank you very much for keeping the station going strong. The next pledge drive is coming up November the 14th through the 22nd, and many listeners have already received membership renewal letters from WERU. Every pledge that comes in before the drive means that our on-air fundraising goal is smaller, which in turn means that if enough people pledge ahead of time by mail or email, we might even be able to shorten our on-air drive or eliminate one drive altogether. It's a good goal, but only possible with your support. If you recently received a membership renewal letter from us, please take a moment to fill out the envelope and mail your donation back to WERU. Any amount is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation for 25 years partnering with donors and nonprofits and communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM. 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make the sense of the issues making facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Which way is the wind blowing? It's no surprise to Maine coastal residents that energy companies and policymakers are looking to the sea to harness the wind. But the best wind is fairly far offshore. How might Maine benefit from this energy resource and how are we going about it? This morning we have some guests in the studio who can help us with that topic. Glad to welcome colleagues Kathleen Layden of the Maine Coastal Program. Welcome, Kathleen. Hi, Ron. And Jake Ward of the University of Maine. Jake, welcome to you. Good morning. And this morning, our topic is Maine's offshore wind demonstration sites. We're in a process um, um, over these last several months and leading up to a decision to be made in in December about where we might demonstrate um, equipment and technology and um, the whole idea of of offshore deep water wind. Kathleen, maybe you could get us started. Why is Maine looking at at offshore wind at this point? Well, very few people realize, Ron, that Maine is a state that is really, really dependent on fossil fuels. Um, Something like 80% of our homes use oil for home heating. All our cars are powered by gasoline. We're spending an enormous amount of money every year in dollars that go out of state to support um, that type of energy consumption. So the winds off the coast of Maine are world-class, and it represents a real opportunity for us. So the Maine Coastal Program and the Department of Conservation are really looking at this as an alternative to, um, to Maine's energy. 
That's correct. Maine leads New England in the most amount of installed wind power on land in Maine's mountains, and now we're looking offshore as well. So this is part of an overall strategy that the state is using to kind of look at its energy resources and how to um, change the mix. What else is going on that's, that's related to offshore wind? Well, for the past year, the governor has had an ocean energy task force that is looking at the potential for wind power, also looking at tidal energy, um, figuring out where we stand with oil and gas development and what Maine's position should be on that, and to a lesser extent, wave power. And within the next month or so is going to be delivering some recommendations to the governor, um, perhaps some new goals for renewable energy in the ocean and creating a strategy for how we reach that potential. And this is also set against the backdrop where Maine is is um, looking at onshore wind um, opportunities as well and really pretty aggressive in that um, approach. That's correct. Um, a number of years ago, Maine created a somewhat streamlined process for land-based wind power um, and hence the development has accelerated a little bit more rapidly in that arena. And and so um, put, put this in perspective, either one of you, Jake or Kathleen, um, the offshore wind potential versus um, the onshore wind, what's available on land, what are we looking at in terms of the, the, um, the orders of magnitude, Jake? Um, the orders of magnitude are at least, you know, 10 or 20 times. Uh, the, the amount of wind in the Gulf of Maine, the resource that is available is much greater offshore. Uh, both in the intensity, the class of winds, the speed of winds, and the duration, uh, the consistency of the winds. Um, the uh, the state, as far as development plans, the state goal uh, as for the land base is uh, 3,000 megawatts, 3 gigawatts of land-based wind, and the Ocean Energy Task Force is now looking at goals for uh, offshore wind and, and are talking in the order of 5 mm. megawatts of uh, 5,000 megawatts, 5 gigawatts of offshore wind. And, so, uh, and you know, one and a half times or so of the land base. And what would that do to, to um, now we're burning oil mostly in our homes and for our cars. We're not going to translate that electrical energy that we get from wind immediately or, or directly. But what, what is it in terms of how much of Maine's energy might be produced? offshore if we could make a rough comparison well right right now the the current electrical energy generated in Maine the capacity is about four gigawatts all sources and currently Maine's electrical use is a little over two to 2.3 gigawatts of power it depends year to year and in and, and some of that is residential and industrial so Certainly, it's uh, replacing some of the fossil fuel-derived electricity with renewables is one aspect. But the, the bigger opportunity is to, as Kathleen said earlier, switch from our fossil fuel dependency for heating and transportation to different types of electrical generation. Um, that's not a wholesale swap out. But for example, if you do look at some of the technologies that you can heat your home with, um, uh, electric heat pumps, uh, geothermal heat pumps, or even off-peak uh, therm uh, thermoelectric heating systems, you could replace your uh, fuel oil systems, your propane or natural gas systems with electrical uh, sources. Uh, some big advances in, in just recently, both uh, Bangor Hydro and now CMP would just receive some uh, federal funding to put the time of use meters in so that your electrical meter can now uh, or will be uh, most Bangor Hydro customers have those types of meters now, CMP will put those in, so they could have time of use 
basically off-peak rates. So when you start putting the pieces together, it starts getting to look economical to switch your your heating systems to uh, different types of electrical. But that means um, what you're really looking for from renewable power generation is long-term, sustainable, consistent prices versus the volatility of uh, foreign fuel, oil, and, and one only has to go back a, a few months or a few years to see the, the price swings in, in, in that. So, And, and at least um, many people are talking about what's called peak oil, the fact that we right. are on the other side of the, the, uh, the, the mountain in terms of, of uh, how much oil there is um, to be uh, produced economically. Right. Yeah. Kathleen? I think something that's really important to add is the typical time it takes to permit um, an offshore energy project. We know the Cape Wind example in Massachusetts has been in the permitting process for more than a dozen years, and if approved, there will probably be appeals as well. So um, go former Governor Angus King likes to put it that Maine dodged a bullet last year when energy prices went back down. And when we're looking again, which we will at some time, we just don't know mm. when, at $4 a gallon gasoline and up, um, Maine, if it starts now in planning for offshore wind, will hopefully lessen that amount of time that it takes to do permitting. So we'll be somewhat more prepared. Mm. So that, that brings us to the question is, what, what is it that we need to know in order to develop this resource. It sounds like uh, now the Cape Wind is in relatively shallow waters, is that right? And what's the, wh what are we looking at, Jake, right. in terms of what we need to know in order to develop this resource? Um, first of all, this isn't anything new. Uh, there's a lot of offshore wind in Europe right now, uh, land and offshore base. Uh, the, the European community has really uh, adopted this, and so there's a lot of activity going on. But most of the offshore wind in Europe, all of the offshore wind in Europe, is in fairly shallow water, uh, typically 100 feet or less. They're now moving out into 100 to 200 feet. That's a, a basically a, a land-based uh, wind turbine that's been put in the water. It's mounted, hard-mounted on the bottom, physically mounted on the bottom, and um, uh, is there, you know, semi-permanently. Um, what we're talking about in the Gulf of Maine, though, is where we have a couple things um, to our advantage in, in some ways is that uh, the, the wind resource in the Gulf of Maine is, is uh, very robust. It's you know, one of ten states along the east coast and west coast that have the highest classes of wind as measured. And wind power uh, out of a turbine uh, increases exponentially with wind speed. So you, know, you can take a, a land-based uh, sized turbine and put it in the water and generate two to three times the power depending on the wind speed. But putting it in shallow water along the coast of Maine is probably not uh, a reasonable and feasible thing to do. So what we're, what we're really looking at is floating platform technology. And there's some distinct advantages to doing floating platform technology um, is that, one, it gets, you, it gets you further offshore into the deeper water, which reduces the impact of, of some of the weather, waves and whatnot, but also gets you further away from uh, areas of high use. Um, and that's one of the objectives is to, you know, minimize the uh, conflicts of use. The second part is it gets you farther away from shore where the winds are more consistent and higher. So there's an economic reason to do that. But floating platform technology is new. There's only been one floating turbine put in the water to date, and that was uh, one that went in Norway um, a few months ago. So the the what folks are trying to do is adapt uh, floating platform technology that was developed for the offshore oil industry 
uh, see how that can work in, in a wind turbine environment, see how it works in a uh, Gulf of Maine environment, um, the, the wind wave conditions, which are different than other places in the world, and also evaluate um, some of the materials and some of the technologies that would make it economically feasible to both build and install and maintain um, during the life of what a commercial wind farm might look like. So I su suppose some of the technology technology questions have to do with um, with those higher more intense winds will exactly. equipment stand up to that that kind of pressure exactly yep. so these are the kinds of questions that um, we're beginning to look at Kathleen from a state government perspective um, what we need to know is where are the best places to install this type of renewable energy um, the role of state government is to protect the public interest we manage the coastal waters within three miles of mainland and islands in trust for all the people of Maine. So it's in our best interest to be proactive in terms of doing some advanced planning. Prior to the work of the Ocean Energy Task Force, any developer um, could come in, and they, they actually can right now, and request a permit from our Department of Environmental Protection for a commercial scale project. What we did um, in the last session of the legislature was to create a process for ocean energy demonstration, which we're going to be talking more about. And uh, in January, there will most likely be some legislation concerning commercial development in state waters. So tightening up those regulations, making sure that our regulations address this new type of development. Um, looking at issues of fees and revenue stream to the people of Maine, um, the impact on fisheries and the like. Mm. I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about Maine's offshore wind demonstration sites. And with us in the studio are Jake Ward of the University of Maine and Kathleen Layden of the Maine Coastal Program. So the, the state has uh, been proposing, um, is proposing demonstration sites in Maine waters. And Jake, what would be happening at these sites? What, if if we were to come across one um, in a boat, some some five years from now, what might we be see seeing out there? Well, the purpose of the demonstration sites, uh, either a university-based research site or a commercial demonstration site, is really to look at how these technologies behave in the environment and provide a, a limited use, a limited uh, access to a, a a place in the ocean in state waters where the university or company can actually test technology, put a turbine out there, and uh, according to the regulations, uh, you know, have a fairly intensive monitoring plan for both the, the technology, the, the, the weather, the meteorology, as well as the environment. So it's a pretty rigorous process, and I think it's, it's very useful because it helps, and all that data that we collect has to be reported to the state, so it helps the state think about how to manage that resource in the long term. But if you were to go out there, what you might see... Um, according to our, our, our current plan is in the from the university perspective in the near term perhaps a, uh, a wind uh, some meteorological equipment a met tower a go moose buoy uh, ocean observation buoy that's measuring uh, wind wave water and other environmental things and uh, a test platform which might be um, our first generation is going to be a scale model uh, might be a 70 to 80 foot high tower with a turbine on top a 10 kilowatt turbine a fairly small turbine uh, beneath the water would be some you know, counterballast-type system and then uh, anchored to the bottom. So it's a floating platform that what we'll be trying to evaluate is how it actually behaves in that environment. And, um, and in the near term, 
that may only be out there for a few months, and then the next gen would be a 100-kilowatt uh, turbine. It might be a 125-foot-tall tower. Uh, again, from the learnings of the first one, going to the second one, uh, second generation, it might be a different floating platform technology at that point, but similar, uh, you know, a, a tall sailboat mass floating in the water mm -hmm. um, with a turbine on top. And then based on all that information, we hope to get to the point where we can develop a, a prototype commercial scale unit, which if if the uh, turbine companies are in the right place and time, might be up to a five megawatt turbine, um, maybe 200 to 250 feet off the water um, with a blade diameter of um, 100 meter diameter blade. So mm -hmm. we start getting bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it's going to look like a, a really tall sailboat mast <laughs> in the water. Uh, on the test sites, the legislation r r limits the number of turbines, test turbines you can have on the site. The university site could have no more than three turbines on the site. A commercial developer could have no more than two. So a commercial company could then also apply to, for a permit to put a, a turbine in the water. Um, they're more likely to, uh, I, I, would, I would assume that they're more likely to not use that option until they have a full-scale commercial, de commercial demonstration unit. Most of what the commercial companies are looking for, and it's the same with uh, some of the bottom-mounted stuff, is two years' worth of wind and wave data to show that they have a, a viable option. Mm. And so that's the kind of stuff they're looking for. But they may be using, um, uh, again, evaluating a prototype technology, like the one in Norway. The Norwegian company put one in, and mm -hmm. they're going to have it out there for a couple of years before they decide to put a commercial farm, which might be you know, 20 or 30 turbines at some point in time. Mm -hmm. And Kathleen, I suppose while all that's going on, um, you're also expecting people to monitor the impacts of, of whatever they're putting out there. So they're looking at the impacts that might um, um, be there for um, fisheries, for um, birds, for marine mammals, that sort of thing. So there's a monitoring um, process as well. That's correct. Um, from a state government point of view, we'll be practicing adaptive management, which is essentially a learn as you go, mm. because we don't have. We, while we have some background baseline information, um, we don't really know um, what the effects of the development will be. We have some idea from studies that are being done in Europe and elsewhere that we want to draw on. But yes, there'll be very detailed monitoring plans that will be designed with the input of a lot of people. Um, there's also a proposal um, perhaps to create a, a science team, a bird and bat team, a marine mammal team that um, will allow state officials to benefit from the advice of other experts. Another important component of this learn-as-you-go uh, type of arrangement is that there will be a bond or a financial surety that will allow that the developer will have to or the university will have to put up to make sure that they can cover the costs of removal of the equipment at the end of the demonstration and also to shut it down uh, if something if there should be some immediate negative effect. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're talking about um, these sites. Now you have to locate the sites, and that's the process that's going on now. Kathleen, tell us about the legislation that was passed in June, and, and then um, we can go into the process. Um, the legislation that was passed in June by a unanimous vote of the legislature. And does that happen very often, a unanimous vote of the legislature? Sometimes it does. I can't tell you how often it is. It just is, strikes me as yes, that's, that's a fact. pretty significant uh, vote of confidence for um, going ahead with this process. I would agree. Yeah. Um, and the, 
The legislation uh, directed my office, the State Planning Office, and Maine's Department of Conservation, which manages the leasing process for state submerged lands, to identify up to five sites, and we were given an incredibly ambitious deadline of December 15th to do that. Um, so the first thing that we did, uh, the, the legislation did have some criteria, which included the things that you might think of, physical characteristics and biological characteristics, but it also included um, a criteria of local support. So uh, what we did initially, uh, all told, Maine has more than 5,000 miles of coastline, and it didn't make sense to us to be looking everywhere. And we also wanted to bring people um, somewhat of a, an idea of which areas would be suitable. So we did an extremely cursory analysis in our office using a geographic information system, a computerized mapping um, program where you can look at various criteria. So we looked at where is it windy, where is it deep, and where are there absolute constraints or uh, in terms of things on the bottom that you couldn't place equipment on top of. We also looked at you know, must-haves as well. Um, the next thing we did was we went to a, uh, an informal scoping process where we met with fishermen in each of the, we identified seven planning areas from that initial uh, analysis and met with fishermen in each of the areas. We did separate meetings with municipal officials and land trusts just to get some idea of uh, what was happening in those areas. We then did a round of public meetings um, at each of the seven locations. We had you know, somewhere between 50 and 80 people at each of those meetings. Um, so we refined all that information, um, which included consultations with state and federal agencies because both of those levels of government have some permitting responsibility in these areas. So we took all that um, information together and analyzed it and narrowed the sites down to four, uh, which are Boone Island off the coast of York, Monhegan Island, Cross Island in Cutler, and I always forget the fourth one. Jake, help me out. Uh, Damerscove right. off of Booth Bay Harbor. So we're now doing a formal public comment process, and we'll talk later about how mm -hmm. people can get engaged in that. But we're going back and doing additional consultations with folks during this period so that we can learn more about exactly how these areas are used. We've um, throughout this process given fishermen maps that they can take home and mark up to tell us how intensively areas are used and how we can work with them to actually site one of these demonstration areas. Mm. Jake, you were at a lot of those initial scoping meetings and the public meetings. What were some of the things that you heard um, either as questions or comments or uh, concerns from, from those meetings? Uh, I think it would it would wouldn't surprise anybody the the typical questions um, everything from uh, the big concern about the environmental issues you know how does this affect birds how does this affect lobsters whales uh, salmon other types of fisheries um, people and, want and Ted Hosking saying um, don't forget the fishermen that's right or the people who fish and then right. and the and the right. and the people right and you know the, a lot of the comments of the fishermen are are related to where the bottom is and how close they could fish to these devices and whether uh, you know if there's a long cable run how does that affect dragging and uh, there was there's questions about uh, you know EMF uh, electric uh, blah blah yeah current right. running through that 
uh, current running through the wire and whether right. that affects things, uh, vibrations and how that might have uh, resonant frequencies that uh, disturb marine mammals or not. And, you know, the thing is that there's a lot of stuff going on in Europe and we're looking at all those studies and those reports. But, um, it, you know, there's not a lot of conclusive stuff, but there's not a lot of inconclusive stuff. So it, mm -hmm. it comes down to that. I think uh, proximity to shipping channels and aids to navigation, how it's going to be lit, what it's, what colors they're going to be, you know, all those all those questions and concerns have been coming up. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, what what do you remember from some of those earlier earlier sessions? Not when they were so much site specific, but just people's general questions and concerns. I think we're asking people to make a big leap here. We're asking them to envision a different future for Maine's coast. Um, you know, it may be common 20, 25 years from now to see windmills off of the main coast, but right now it's a challenge for people to imagine that. So they want to know what's in it for me. Mm -hmm. What are the local benefits? How does this benefit me from a fisherman's perspective? If I'm giving up um, an area of the bottom, you know, am I going to be compensated? Um, so the concept of planning for global warming and reducing our carbon footprint and things that may happen in the future and are somewhat speculative doesn't necessarily resonate with people right now. Mm. It's more the the immediate benefits. The you know, we've talked a lot about the potential jobs and economic development that may accrue and that, you know, it it seems somewhat speculative to people who are you know, thinking about their livelihood right now. So the notion of, of what am I going to have to give up? Correct. And, and what am I going what to get? What am I going to get? Yeah. Right, right. So that question. We are, are, are um, opening our phone lines to folks if they've got questions or comments as we talk about Maine's offshore wind demonstration sites with Kathleen Layden of the Maine Coastal Program and Jake Ward of the University of Maine. You can participate if you'd like to call us at one 866 625-9378 or locally 469-0500. And we do have a caller on the line. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Good morning. Um, I have a question about the, the uh, existing transmission lines. Now, this would, I assume, would have to be beefed up or changed somewhat if, if this was going to go forward. Are there studies or are there proposals that encompass that? So the transmission lines um, leading um, throughout Maine or leading sure, well, Maine? If we're talking about a, a major a major energy uh, production center yeah. in the in the Gulf of Maine, um, first I, I'm curious about what the the transmission line. Well, there was talk recently about tr um, transmission lines from um, New Brunswick, and they're redoing nuclear plants there, and and I don't know how much that would affect. But is this something that's that's part of this study, or is this a Great. We'll, we'll ask Jake Ward to answer your question. Thanks for your call. Um, the the caller is absolutely right. The you know for for a a grid scale um, you know what we would call a commercial farm that is in the order of you know several hundred megawatts up to a gigawatt. Um, th there definitely are challenges with bringing that power ashore and putting it into the transmission line, and and there's a lot of um, work going on uh, between you know the utilities right now and the state trying and and even the legislature looking at how to improve that transmission system, whether it's for uh, bringing more renewable power, uh, Rustic County wind down or, or uh, Canadian power in. And, and so part of the important par part of having this offshore wind discussion now is making sure that that's taken into consideration as part of this planning is going. Uh, a lot of our work that we've been doing involves uh, 
people from Bangor Hydro and CMP, they're, they're, they're participating in the, the evaluations and trying to think about, you know, if you did have an offshore farm, where it could come to shore and how that would be integrated. There's, there's big issues relative to not just the size and the amount, but also the intermittency that uh, wind-based power brings. You've got to be able to balance that load. When, when the wind blows, you've got to have a place to put the electricity. When the wind doesn't blow, how are you backing that up? So those are all part of the... Um, the studies that are going on right now. And that's kind of a, a much larger kind of set of pictures. Much larger it, set of pictures. But it's connected, yes. It d- definitely wind is land-based, offshore, tidal, uh, any of the renewables, additional biomass, hydro, all fit into that, that problem, that mm. picture. Yeah. I believe we have another call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, uh, David here from Brooklyn. Same, uh, same topic, as a matter of fact, same time, same topic. Transmission. Uh, we're thinking here about the future, and I'd like to, you know, like to uh, encourage to go a little bit further into that thought. Uh, transmission, that's where the power is uh, distributed, and uh, that's what's so interesting to all the big power companies about this is how they can get a share of control of this uh, vast resource, which we're offering to tap for them and uh, sacrifice our view and nautical and all that for it. Uh, I just wanted to put into the mix the question of whether and how much consideration people have given to the notion that rather than running this vast amount of power ashore to be squabbled over by very big power brokers uh, one way and another, uh, through cables which we're going to discover are very, very toxic uh, to marine life that lives on the bottom, such as lobsters and so uh, not to mention difficult to lay and uh, a problem to the draggers for what yeah, I'd soon have them have as many problems as possible. But anyhow, uh, that aside, what if we stored up the energy in batteries out there on the site and shipped the batteries ready charged ashore on very slow sailing barges, very large, capable to carry a lot of lead weight batteries, ashore and distributed them so people could put them in their nice electrical cars and run their nice electrical off-the-grid houses with them. And there wouldn't have to be no distributors at all, aside from the the nice, like, wind-powered barges that might happen to carry the power ashore uh, from, the, from the generating windmill farm, uh, so that we can get this whole thing of getting it into a cable and distributed by cable and all the nightmarish problems that that's going to stir up Great. right out of the picture. Great question. Let's see if we can get some response from our guests. Thanks so much for your call this morning. Interesting uh, concept. Sure. Right? Uh, I, I would say that the, um, the concept of doing some, uh, collecting that energy locally at the, at the wind site and bringing it to shore through some other vehicle than cables is something that a lot of folks are looking at because, uh, as the caller points out, there's there's not only the challenge of, of running cables through uh, different areas, but there's also the challenge of the cost uh, you know, associated with the economics. So there's a variety of folks looking at different ways to think about how to store that energy and bring it to shore in, in different ways. And while that's the, the first time I've heard of the concept of the charge batteries, I have uh, you know, heard of, of um, converting it to the electricity to hydrogen 
out there and being able to bring that ashore, um, doing it as compressed air. Uh, there's a lot of variations uh, that folks are looking at that would minimize the infrastructure needed um, to, to bring that power to shore. That begins also to ask the question, um, how do Maine people, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, mm-hmm. how many, many people benefit from this? And, and we're familiar with uh, Denmark and the, the, the investment in land-based um, windmills that are, are local people can invest in those and they can make the, the re- get the return locally. I think, I, I think the, the, frankly, the biggest opportunity, the economic development opportunity, uh, whether it's land-based wind or offshore wind or any type of uh, renewable power like that is, is is the opportunity for Maine people to build, to install, to deploy, and be part of that industry. Uh, that's what they're seeing in Denmark. That's what they're seeing in Germany. It's the employment that comes along with that. The German government has established a, a port facility where most of the offshore wind turbines are built, uh, built right at the port facility, uh, put together and put on barges and sent out. And so they become the, the shipping hub for that and the workforce is there. Uh, I think, um, and and just just to sort of echo that, the University of Maine has been working with the Maine Composites Alliance and the Maine Wind Industry Initiative and uh, several other trade associations to really explore the opportunity for manufacturing wind blades right now. Most of those are made overseas and shipped in, even for the land-based ones. And so uh, in January, we'll be holding a a multi-day workshop for composite companies and contractors to understand what the opportunities are in composite manufacturing, in building some of these structures, even for land-based now, but with the idea of being on the ground floor should an offshore industry develop. Now, Kathleen, um, if this um, were to develop in the way that um, you're obviously talking about, um, the actual offshore wind is not going to be in Maine waters. It's going to be probably in federal waters, the commercial development. Does Maine um, see any benefit from taxing things, uh, the, the electricity that comes ashore in Maine? How, how do we benefit from that side? Jake's talking about the jobs. Is there something that, w- that Maine benefits from from the actual um, electricity itself? Right. Um, For development in federal waters, Maine would stand to benefit if the project were in, uh, I think, I believe it's within six miles of our jurisdictional boundary um, from a a system of revenue sharing that's been set up by the Minerals Management Service in the Department of Interior, which is the permitting entity. So similar to offshore oil, we would benefit in a similar kind of way. That's correct. That's correct. Um, What would remain in the state's jurisdiction is permitting authority and submerged lands leasing uh, authority over a cable that would come to shore. So we'd obviously be looking at the best placement for that with the, the minimal, the you know, the most minimal impacts. We could um, have a say in whether that cable is buried, um, which would, you know, result in less navigational challenges and there would be um, a revenue stream mm. from that mm-hmm. submerged lands lease as well for the cable. I want to come back to the four sites that have been uh, proposed, and, and, and we'll do that in a few minutes, but we ha- also have some calls. You can participate as well if you'd like to call 1-866-625-9378 as we talk about Maine's offshore wind demonstration sites. And our guests in the studio are Kathleen Layden of the Maine Coastal Program and Jake Ward of the University of Maine. We have a call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, good morning. Is, good am morning. I on? Okay. Yes, go ahead. All right. Um, well, it's a comment and a question. Uh-huh. I'd like everybody to just back up a little bit, <laughs> all the way back to when wind and water and air were f- free. 
and the sun was free. Okay? And they belonged to all life. Now we can fast forward to where we are now. Now Maine, off, off of its shores, has wind. We have wind on land. We've seen how the wind is being captured and sold out from underneath the common good. We don't see any effort to take a look at microclimates in terms of location of windmills. We want them right on top where we can get the most energy. The energy is not decentralized. We will be shipping it out of state down to where there are larger population centers. People who use more energy, businesses who use more energy, get price breaks. And uh, I've always longed to see solar, wind, and water power developed properly. But the people of the state of Maine are really not going to be the ones who benefit from this. And the state is already seeing situations such as the groundwater and the aquifers that we have being bought up, not just by Hershey's, but a long time ago by water to steam plants. We must stop the way that we do business. We need to back up and take a look at natural resources in a sustainable manner and think about the people who come after us, our children and their children, and all the life also. So all these lovely technological fixes with cables and everything are just great, but could we just try to simplify things a little bit by decentralizing our energy policies and having appropriate energy sources developed for the places in which they exist and having the people who live near those and need to maintain them and who should benefit from them be able to keep the stewardship and the trust of those. Business as usual is absolutely out of control and the next big wave is developing what used to be free for everyone. It's just a comment. I'd like to see some further discussion on how we can back off a little bit, step back a little bit, try to make things simpler, simpler. We don't need to use more energy. We could. I haven't heard the word conservation used very much in all of the discussions about our energy situation in this country. Great comments. Thanks so much for your call this morning. Yeah. We have one more call. Let's take that call and see w w where there might be some cross-sections, and then we'll get some comments from our guests. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. The thing that strikes me immediately about this discussion, and um, I am a proponent of wind and solar and alternative technologies, and I do believe that uh, new technologies need a rigorous permitting process. I just think it's really unfortunate kind of rigor was not applied to the nuclear and coal industries. But my, my comment about the discussion is that it seems that the rubric is commercial, big business, large installations. And the problem that we face, as we face with 
so much of our infrastructure, like agriculture and energy and stuff like that, it's transmission. How do you get the stuff from here to there? And a great deal of our economy is involved with transmission of everything we use. So it seems to me that the most important development for alternative energy is going to be decentralized. And you've got to be able to make energy where it's going to be used. And it's the transporting it, the, the cables, the LNG tankers, the all that kind of thing that adds, the, adds to the cost and adds to the environmental damage. So, And then the, the other point about the previous, the comments from the previous caller is that there's no kind of green system we could ever invent that will provide the kind of energy that we've grown used to wasting while we've had practically free oil for the past hundred years. Great. Thanks so much for running the show. Great. Thanks Thanks so much for your comments. Um, both of these callers are, are asking us to step back and look at the big policy questions and the, the question of distribution. Um, uh, how, how do we do that, uh, kind of that appropriate technology? If, if, if I need power in my house, can I have something that generates power for me in my house rather than having it run through the system? Jake, thoughts about that? You know, both callers had uh, great comments and very, very pragmatic view. Um, I mean, these are things that we, we talk about and debate intensely. Um, the number one is is obviously conservation, and I think both the first caller uh, said it and the second caller alluded to it, that we uh, in the United States, uh, our society has grown to be um, very uh, energy greedy. And, and the way we live, the way we live every day, is, you know, most people would say is irresponsible based on the amount of energy we use. You know, drop, driving a 3,000-pound a car using, uh, you know, gallons of gas to take one person, you know, 10 miles up the road. It, it's just, uh, you know, when, when the country expanded and we decentralized, we no longer have uh, the efficiencies of uh, transportation and, and energy distribution. So that's the, that's the lot we've created for ourselves. Uh, thinking about decentralizing your energy sources is a perfectly pragmatic thing to do, and, and everybody should think about it that way. However, there there are the the demands that we're trying to replace, and the economies of scale. And so, you know, the 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 fortunate, unfortunate, however you want to look at it, is that the the commercial opportunity is grid scale, mm-hmm. um, and and that's how you get to the cost effective uh, power generation that we come to depend on. Um, more than open, and I think you're seeing this around the country. If you if you actually look at the generation of power in Maine, the number of uh, utilities that are not utilities but generators now, power generators, there's there's thousands of small you know small hydro, small biomass, small uh, power generators. So we really do have a uh, a decentralized, uh, I mean, but more central to those communities. Um, how you manage all that continues to be the challenge. But uh, you look at some of the community-based wind projects that are going up. The Vinyl Haven project is a good example of of really trying to address those issues in a in a smaller base. But um, I, I don't think there's a perfect answer yet, and I'm I'm happy to hear it because mm-hmm. uh, the, the the both callers are right on target with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are the society that we are. Mm. Kathleen, anything to add? Yeah, I would add that that we do have the state has a tremendous interest in conservation programs and weatherization. So I would encourage both callers, if they're not familiar already, to look at the state energy office's website and the the energy the efficiency main 
program through the Public Utilities Commission. Um, one thing that we haven't spent a great deal of time on because we're talking about wind power is tidal energy. Um, and I think that deserves um, some conversation and merit perhaps in a future show mm -hmm. for local benefits. Um, I know there's a very successful project that's moving slowly through the prototype stage to demonstration to commercialization in Eastport that's generating a lot of local benefits. I know that the Island Institute um, out of Rockland, Maine is looking at a series of different community ownership models that may um, prove to be successful in Maine for wind. Uh, Fisherman's Energy out of New Jersey is um, an entity that uh, you know local fishermen have now a stake, a financial state stake in commercial wind development. And I guess the last thing I would add is that although you know, there are comp compelling reasons to look at local generation and local use of that power. This is really also a national responsibility. And I think, you know, we, we maybe need to look at this on a, a national basis as well. I think the, the five gigawatt goal was, I think, developed, Jake, by looking at, you know, what does Maine need to contribute as a state towards reaching that, is it what 20% renewables by 2020? 2030. 2030. So mm -hmm. that's, that's how that was der derived. What's our share? So this is also part of, of tr trying to figure out another way to give ourselves energy that isn't putting greenhouse gases into the environment, which is part of what we're looking at in terms of climate change. We have two more calls, and then I want to come back to the question of where are these sites and what we know about the, the, the four uh, sites that have been proposed. But go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, um, you were talking about the cables being the problem of, in and of themselves. Uh, airlines, as we started to use these modern electronic devices, started having interference problems, so they started shielding their cables. So I don't see why we can't find technology to shield these cables and then bury them so that they won't interfere with the fishing. And that's my comment. Thank you. Great. Thanks for your call this morning here on WERU Talk of the Towns. We're talking about Maine's <laughs> offshore fish, uh, uh, offshore wind demonstration sites. Um, some of their impacts might have to do with fish, and shielding the cables might be a way to do that. Jake, any comment? Uh, certainly the, uh, the known technology for larger transmission is, is high-voltage DC. They are shielded cables, and they'll bury them wherever they can. There's mm -hmm. certain bottom areas where it's, it's more difficult to bury them. Um, I, I think there is a technological solution there. It, it, it's just a question of what we don't know um, mm -hmm. is, you know, how lobsters live around them and whether that is a, an effect or not an effect. Um, and, and part of it, you know, is also economic. You know, if the, 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 the prices that they're talking about for these types of cables are a million dollars a mile. So now, it, now you have to have enough wind generation uh, enough kilowatt hours flowing through those so that the cost of the cable doesn't outweigh the the advantages of uh, the economics of deriving the wind mm. power. Kathleen, tell us again um, what sites um, have been selected as, as kind of narrowing the, the field a little bit, and what's the process that um, the state is using to decide which of those sites might go forward as actual demonstration sites? Okay, this time maybe I'll remember all four <laughs> of the sites. They are um, moving from west to east, Boone Island off of the coast of York, um, Damerscove, uh, an area, well, not adjacent to, but in proximity to Damerscove Island off of Booth Bay Harbor, um, Monhegan, a uh, location off of Monhegan Island, and a place off of Cutler um, in the vicinity of Cross Island. 
Um, each of these areas are, what, 1.5 to 2 square miles in size. They're windy. They're deep. Um, these partly are uh, areas that have been identified by fishermen. Um, not all fishermen. Our process hasn't been perfect. But um, places where we anticipate there to be the least amount of conflict um, with existing fishing uses and other human activities, these areas uh, all hug the three-mile state boundary, so they're not directly adjacent to or, or viewed from the mainland, so there should be minimal uh, viewshed impacts. And we're going through, we're right now in the middle, the exact middle of a 30-day comment period that ends on November 30th. And there are several ways to comment. Do you want me to actually yes, get the specifics yep. out there? Um, the gentleman who is uh, responsible for collecting all the public comments is Dan Pritchard. Dan is the Submerged Lands Coordinator at the Department of Conservation. His phone number, if you want to phone comments to him, 287-4919. And I should add right away that if you want to look at maps of the areas, if you want to look at the methodology for how they were selected, you want to do some additional background reading on what is a demonstration area, you can go to the Department of Conservation's website at www.maine.gov backslash DOC for Department of Conservation. And you'll see uh, three quarters of the way down their page, you'll see a photo of some wind turbines. And if you click on the hyperlink there, that'll bring you to more information. Uh, so in addition to the phone number, which again was, am I, do I have a career yes, in radio? Yes, you do. 207-287-4919 is Dan's phone number. His address, uh, again, Dan Pritchard, P-R-I-C-H-A-R-D, Maine DOC, 22 State House Station, Augusta, Maine, 04333. And the final way you can comment is going back to that website. There's a comment box, and you can directly submit your comments over the Internet. So you'll be taking these comments until the end of November, and then you've got two weeks to make a decision. That's um, correct. How, how, will you, how, how will that process work? You'll be sifting through these comments. You'll be looking at the earlier comments from fishermen, from local officials, because one of the things that you said in, the, in selecting these sites, there needs to be a demonstration of some kind of community support. Correct. It's not uh, that there's local involvement directly in mm -hmm. the decision making. Mm -hmm. The state will be making right. the decision based on uh, all the criteria that we've talked about during the show. But it's it's important to us that we work in a place that is um, welcoming, where mm -hmm. people want to do this, um, where people are excited about this opportunity. And especially with the university's um, research and development site, this is a long-term relationship between the community or communities, um, you know, because uh, offshore areas are really, uh, you know, there's a whole region or an embayment um, of towns and people that are, are interested in an area offshore. So a long-term relationship with the university that's looking at, you know, a, a back and forth, a, a give and take. Mm. And Jake, um, the university has made some important strides in, in, in uh, getting funding for some of these activities. Give us a review of what's happened in the last few months there. Well, I think the, the, the um, important, one important thing is to, to, to understand how we got here in the first place. And 
we have our, our folks in our School of Marine Science have been studying the Gulf of Maine for decades. And some of our folks in our engineering programs, our composites programs, have been looking at structural composites. And so the, uh, the advances in the composite industry, a lot have been around renewable power industry. And so as we start exploring the, gro the growth in that industry with, with Maine's composites industry, we started seeing an opportunity for that to, to merge with this. So um, going back several years, we've had ongoing work from the National Science Foundation and, and various other uh, agencies in studying the Gulf of Maine and understanding the Gulf of Maine, as well as uh, looking at composite materials for different applications, including the Navy and energy and all those types of things. So as we, as we started looking at this opportunity, we started exploring um, some of the DOE programs. Uh, as Kathleen mentioned earlier, the United States and the Department of Energy have set a goal of 20% renewable energy by 2030, and they have several programs to look at that. And, and part of that is energy independence and security. Part of it is greenhouse gas, and part of it is economic development. Uh, so we've applied for some of the DOE funding to look at the um, how to evaluate the offshore wind energy opportunity. Uh, it is it is a program that the Department of Energy has established for the nation. So we were fortunate enough to be selected as essentially the uh, offshore research uh, wind center for the country. Uh, we're the only one that was selected in that mm -hmm. program. So part of this is to meet, look at Maine's opportunities, but also to meet the national objective. So a recent award from the Department of Energy, a little over $7 million, will help us uh, get started in looking at turbine design, floating turbine design, environmental monitoring, all the pieces required to get our permits in place, and look at um, putting a, some of the first scale model, the 10 kilowatt type towers out within uh, about a year and a half. Mm. Um, but we also have uh, funding from uh, other agencies to work with the composite industry, develop curriculum, develop training so folks can go to work in the industry. So it's, it's a comprehensive uh, approach. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of those benefits that you see um, as, as potential of Maine's jobs. Um, where do you see those coming and, and how might those jobs be developed? We see in the onshore wind, people using their skills and, and applying those. How might we make that bridge um, with offshore wind? As part of this grant, we actually formed a consortium of, of companies uh, in, in Maine uh, and otherwise, but that are already participating in some of that. They're contractors like Chimbro and BIW. They're engineering firms like uh, Sewell uh, that, are, that are already doing work in the land base. And, and I know that several of the engineering consulting firms, the permitting firms, are 100% of their activity right now, or a large percent of it is, is in the development of land-based wind um, whether it's in Maine or in uh, New Hampshire, Vermont, or other places. So there is a, I mean, if uh, in December there will be a uh, American Wind Energy Association meeting in Boston, and all these Maine companies are going down there with booths and displays and, you know, trying to bid their goods. So um, we really see the that contingency as being a core to developing whatever possibilities there are in the offshore. Uh, so the, the folks that go to work are those are everything from, you know, the engineers and scientists that, support the permitting to the design and building to the contractors that build the roads into the current sites, um, you know, they see opportunities, the, the shipping companies, the barges that are bringing blades into certain places now. So it continues to expand on those existing jobs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, there will be training involved um, in some cases to, to uh, expand right. Maine people's ability to take those jobs. Exactly. Uh, Northern Maine Community College is one of the only community colleges in the Northeast right now that just started offering a, a wind turbine technician program. 
uh, as far as I've heard, it's it's full, it's oversubscribed, and in fact, the companies are trying to hire people away before they even finish the program. Mm -hmm. So they can get through a few courses, they, they've got a job. The demand is there. Um, we're, as part of some of our proposal work, we're looking to ex ex work with the community college to expand that in also in conjunction with Maine Maritime Academy to how to how to create the training that takes those kinds of jobs and puts them on the water. Mm -hmm. So that you know expanding in that direction mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well we're almost at the end of the hour. We might have time for another phone call or two. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight or four six nine zero five zero zero. What else have you heard from people around these four sites um, that um, are either intriguing to you or that cause concern or are raising concerns. Anything particular in these sites that, that remain out of the seven? Um, you know, moving again from, from uh, south to, to uh, east. Um, yeah, I guess that the prevailing sentiment that we have touched on is that all these areas are heavily fished. Mm -hmm. We go out to find, you know, that one magical place and Jake will say, you know, we just need a small area. <laughs> um, it's Every area is fished. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of specifics to the sites, um, Boone Island has a shipwreck near it called the Empire Knight that, um, for those of you that don't know, you might be surprised to find out that there is a, a cache of mercury that is still on board that shipwreck, although it's stabilized and there is ongoing monitoring. But there have been some questions about, you know, how, how would weather affect the um, movement of, of the demonstration uh, piece of equipment? Would mercury become, you know, waterborne and that type of thing? Let's take a call and see what um, our listeners are thinking about. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, my name's Dave, and I'm in Brooklyn. I have a comment. We've had a couple of comments about the excessively large scale of these generators, and I've looked at the math for Kibbe Mountain, the three megawatt generators there. Each one uh, is equal to about 300 Berge Excel, the largest uh, model made by that company. And there's 22 running there, and to replace those with smaller ones, uh, it's equivalent about 5,000 generators. And then if you move them to where there's 80% of the wind speed, you're going to need about 10,000 of them. Uh, we may have space to generate local energy here in Maine, but, but it's a national problem, as is conservation, and don't have the, the, the space to generate their electricity for, for lights, hospitals, police, fire, the whole range of things. More discussion of this. December 4th on Renewable Radio, you might recognize my voice. Thank you for this program. Great. Well, thanks for your call this morning. So the, the, the notion here is that we might have the desire to do some of this locally on land, but we really don't have the space. We're at the end of the hour. Um, we'll give you last, last comments. What are your hopes for this? Kathleen, what, what do you hope will happen um, for the state of Maine? I hope that we'll be looking back in 25 or 30 years and saying that we did it right, mm. that if, if uh, this type of development comes to be that it's good for Maine people, it's accepted, and it was the right thing to do at the time. Great. Jake Ward? I'd agree with everything that Kathleen just said. <laughs> I think we're, we're trying to do the, the most, uh, you know, a rigorous, thorough evaluation to see if this is the right opportunity for Maine, and it's got to make sense for Maine in order for it to go forward. Great. Well, good luck with both of your um, work as you um, proceed through this process. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was 
produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. And speaking of your support, you know that tomorrow we'll be starting our um, fund drive. Um, We hope that you'll participate actively and often to uh, uh, support productions of programs like Talk of the Towns and all of the fine music programs like On the Wing that's coming up next. Join us from 10 to 11 on the 2nd and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Kathleen Layden of the Maine Coastal Program and Jake Ward of the University of Maine. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned, as I said, for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Coastal Drilling and Blasting Incorporated, serving Downey, Central, and Midcoast, Maine, and located at 328 Bucksport Road, Ellsworth, 1-800-640-3515.